Hi, everyone. It's the Frank Forza Show. I am here with my guest, Julia Salata. Julia is a world-class wrestler. She is gunning for the 2021 Olympic Games. Uh, she, I consider her a pioneer in women's wrestling. She was wrestling when she was pretty much the only girl on the mat. And that takes a lot of courage to be a woman in a very alpha domain, very grueling training, and to train only with men. Some of those men with, with their egos, the last thing they want is to lose to a woman, lose to a girl. So a lot of the, the guys go pretty rough with the women. you got to be tough to have been a female pioneer in jiu-jitsu, in any of the fight sports, in wrestling. So I'm thrilled to have her here today. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Uh, I want to tell you a little bit about me, for those who might be listening, my background. Uh, I was a, I'm a, I'm a graduate. I got my degree in philosophy, so I like to think a lot. I think too much. I was a journalist for many years for newspapers and in TV as a managing editor. I also worked for the Ultimate Fighting Championship for five years. I worked closely for several of those years with UFC President Dana White. Those were great years. Got to be behind the scenes interviewing a lot of the fighters uh, bringing their stories to life so that we could paint the fighters as something other than just thugs and we needed to to combat the popular stereotype of fighters as as just violent and uneducated. I was a part of that. I also was one of the first 3,000 Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts in the world. Um, I've competed in a lot of the uh, biggest tournaments in Jiu-Jitsu. I've had the pleasure to train with a lot of uh, elite wrestlers including Olympic um, uh, Olympic bronze medalists, national champion wrestlers, dozens of UFC fighters, and many dozens of uh, world champions in jiu-jitsu. So what we're going to do here today, we're going to talk a lot about emotional fitness, mental fitness, spiritual fitness, mindset, attitude. We're going to get into Julia's story, her, her arc, her prism, some of the principles that have worked well for her. And we're going to take a look at the state of Women's wrestling and women in jiu-jitsu skyrocketing right now. One stat I saw, which Julia will address later, is that more than 10% of all the high school wrestlers in the country now are, are girls and young women. That's phenomenal. That is phenomenal growth. It is changing quick. We are in what I call the golden age of girl power. And so, um, Julia, I'm very thrilled to have you here uh, today. This is, by the way, everyone, this is take two with Julia Salata because we actually did almost two hours, great video interview, was all set to put it up, had a lot of technical difficulties, the art, the audio is garbled, and so God bless Julia Salata and me, we have the mental fortitude and the grit, Julia, uh, to reshoot this, that's how, yeah. that's how determined we are. <laughs> Yeah, so let's let's dive in. So tell us a little bit about your arc. What would make a, a, a young woman, you know, many years ago, over a decade ago, say, hey, you know what? I want to be the only, I want to go wrestle and I want to be the only, I'm okay with being the only girl on the mat. What would make someone do that? I was always a super active kid and I never really shied away from anything. Uh, growing up, I grew up in a neighborhood that had a lot of kids around my age and all of them were all guys. So I grew up playing like backyard tackle football. We wrestled with each other. We played street hockey. So I was never, I never shied away from those types of things. Uh, around maybe second or third grade, I got really into WWE uh, and pro wrestling, and I was like obsessed with. It. You know, I had John Cena T-shirts, and I loved The Undertaker. To this day, The Undertaker is still my favorite wrestler. And around 
middle school, I, I, I kind of started things like, maybe I want to try this. Like, I was aware of the fact that what I was seeing on TV wasn't real, but I also knew that there was an actual real sport of wrestling that took place on the mat, two people in a circle. And in eighth grade, they actually started middle school wrestling in my school district for the first time. So I came home with a flyer for it. I took it to my mom, brought it back home. I said, Mom, I want to wrestle. And she said, Julie, you know, this isn't WWE. And I said, I know, I know, but I, I think that this is what I want to do. You know, I, I wrestled with my friends in the backyard. And, you know, it, 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 we just kind of goofed around. But I thought that it sounded like fun. So I signed up. And at the end of that inaugural middle school season, there was a city championship with all five of the middle schools in our district. And I ended up winning that tournament against all men. Um, well, boys at the time, they were you know, 13, 14 years old. But uh, some of those kids have been wrestling for three or four years at that point, and I beat them all. And at the end of the tournament, the high school coach, the high school I was going to approach my parents and said, hey, I'd love to have Julia on the team. I think she has potential. Um, we've never had a girl here, but, you know, we're going to treat her like anybody else. And if she wants to join our program, we'd love to have her. So I got to high school that next year, showed up to an informational meeting, and started wrestling in high school. Um, and kind of start taking the sport more seriously, and, and the rest is history from there. So, uh, by the way, so you did not, how did you not get a big ego? You go in that tournament, you beat the boys, you're the champ. How did that not go to your head? Because some people, they'd be like, man, you know, I mean, how did that not, you know, inflate your ego a little bit? Um, I mean, it did a little bit, I won't lie. 14 year old Julie got a little cocky after that. But uh, I, I think part of it is that, you know, when I came into high school, I, you know, I, I wasn't even close to being the best kid in the room. I wasn't even the best kid on the JV team. Um, I knew I was still a beginner, and I, I think I knew, too, that it was a little bit of beginner's luck. I, I just had a lot of natural ability. Um, and in middle school, you can kind of get away with that. Again, wrestling with 13- and 14-year-old boys, but I mean, you get to high school, and you're wrestling some 18-year-old. Again, now, now we're talking about men at that point. There's a strength difference, and it was just a lot more of a challenge. So I think I knew I had potential, and I think that's you know why I want to work hard, why I to improve, but... I also realized that I, it was a brand new sport and, you know, I, I may have had a little bit of success, but there was still a long way to go if I wanted to accomplish the things that I wanted to in the sport. Now tell me about your parents because it takes a certain, there are a lot of parents, I always say, you know, I coined the phrase many years ago, fighting is in our DNA, and I would say another phrase would be, you know, wrestling, we're wired to wrestle. We are naturally, primally wired to wrestle as well. It is in us. A lot of parents sort of you see so many parents discourage their kids from doing whether it be wrestling whether it be football and they'll say you know they're scared for them to play in the dirt they're scared if they fall they're scared if somebody tackles them or somebody takes them down hard or in jujitsu if they get armbar they see someone choke their kid and their kid taps out and a lot of so many parents are scared of that and that just sort of that does something psychologically to kids who 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 grow up and never wrestle or never do any physical or grueling sport because it was taboo when they were younger, right? You had the opposite. You apparently had supportive parents. Tell us about the role and the parenting style that enabled a girl like you to to actually go into wrestling and be okay. Well, I think first and foremost, I'm an only child. And in a lot of ways, I was probably a stereotypical only child where I, I kind of always... I don't want to say I got my way, but I had the opportunity to do a lot more things. And there were times where I was playing like four or five sports simultaneously at any given time. So because my parents only had one kid, it was never an issue to have to, you know, jockey schedules and figure out when can you take this kid to this practice and this and this activity. I mean, whatever I wanted to do, as long as I wasn't double booked in a time slot in a given day, my parents were always able to take me there. Um, so I was really fortunate in that regard. And then as for, you know, how we ended up doing a lot of these sports, you know, I also played.
ice hockey and roller hockey. When I played roller hockey, I was also the only girl um, for almost my entire career. Um, and I think, like I said, I grew up with all boys. My parents wanted me to get outside and go play. And, you know, if I want to go play backyard tackle football, that's what I did. So I, I think they realized pretty early on when I was like two or three years old that that's the kind of kid that I was. You know, I was a little bit mean, you know, except the boys are out and stuff. And I think they kind of, I don't say they liked it, but I think they were happy with the fact that I was pretty independent and could take care of myself. I wasn't going to be that little shy, timid girl who wasn't, was, you know, afraid to stand up for herself and, and kind of make her own path. So they've always supported me in everything that I've done, um, athletically or otherwise. And I, I think that's just my parents, too. I mean, either one of them are, are very um, true people by any means, that they've always, you know, shown me tough love and everything. And they were actually the ones that put me in hockey when I was, like, four or five years old. They're like, because they were, they were big hockey people and from Michigan originally, and they're like, she needs to play hockey. This, this is the right sport to start out with. I feel like most parents start with, like, soccer or gymnastics. My parents were like, no, 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 hockey in an all-boys league, in, a, in an all-boys roller hockey league. So um, I'm really grateful for them for always um, supporting me and also just not treating me like a fragile little girl. Um, they're kind of like, whatever you want to do, go do it. Just, just as long as you're willing to work your butt off, then, then have at it. It's interesting because when I was – Throughout my career, I've been able to train with some of the top um, female combat sports athletes in the world. Michelle Nicolini, who was a pioneer and awesome jiu-jitsu black belt, multiple-time world champion. I've trained with Gabrielle Garcia. I've trained with Misha Tate, former UFC um, champion. I've tra- trained with with uh, Tammy Musumeci, who's phenomenal, who was a black belt world champion, and many others. And... You know, you always have a soft spot, I think, and a deep respect when you see the women on the mat because you know how hard it can be. So many of them, you know, most of their training sessions are with guys or, you know, young men, grown men. And you do hear some horror stories, right? There are definitely times every woman who's been in the combat sports as long as you have is going to go with some guys that are going to be really rough, right? Some guys who just... Maybe it's ego. Maybe the guy's just wild anyway. And so you you hear some of those horror stories. You see them sometimes in the gym. What, you know, what percentage of guys would you say kind of are really rough with you? And what percentage would you say are kind of gentlemen where they're being more technical? They're kind of working with you. They're giving the work. What percentage if you had to break that down? I'd say it's about half and half. I, I think it's pretty close to 50%. Um, maybe 60-40, 60% being ones who aren't being rough. But I think, you know, now it's a little bit different, too. Um, with wrestling, now I train almost exclusively with females, exception of my two primary training partners, uh, who are both NCAA All-Americans. But there, there are two, um, our men's team, at the college I coach, there are men's coaches. So when they wrestle with me, they're the, you know, they have the understanding that I'm there to train and they're there to be partners for me and um, really help me with some technique and, and fundamental areas. But... Now, the, the most time I've been training with males now is at jiu-jitsu. Um, I'm one of only two girls at my gym right now. And that's where I kind of see that 50-50 split. And the ones who aren't rough are the ones who have kind of been there a while. Um, you know, I started jiu-jitsu with 12 years of grappling experience. So I think when I came in the door, they thought, oh, it's a new girl. She's a white belt. I should probably take it easy and, and help her out with technique and stuff. And then, you know, I think, you know, you might know a lot of jiu-jitsu yet. I started beating a lot of these guys. Um, just based off, um, you know, the grappling background alone. And they kind of recognized me as a legit competitor. So 
they started to, to elevate their level in order to, you know, to give me a look as well. But it was never rough. It was just giving me that, you know, almost giving me the respect that I could compete with them and be on a level playing field with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and honestly, I'm, I'm, you know, I mentioned this last time we talked, I'm probably one of the rougher ones in there. Um, just inherently from coming from wrestling and being used to hand fighting and grueling and grinding, um, where I see a lot of the guys that are rough with me are the guys now come into the gym and there are new guys. I think they think to themselves, you know, like, you know, they start rolling with all the guys and rest, you know, rolling with some guys that have some color on their belt, and then they get paired up with me and they think, okay, well, I gotta win this one. You know, I, I you know, I, I've got my butt beat all day today. Like, I, I'm going with the girl. Like, I'm definitely gonna win this one. And they'll like jump on me right away, and I just kind of let them do it. You know, pull guard or something and tap them some way, and then they kind of get like a little bit offended. You know, their, their pride, their ego gets hurt a little bit, so they'll come back and they'll go harder for the second round. And same thing, I'll tap them again. And sometimes they'll eventually figure out that I'm a legitimate competitor and they'll calm down. Or they're the kinds of guys that their ego has been hurt too much, um, not even just by me, but other guys in the room, and they're not used to losing. Um, and they don't come back after a couple weeks anyway. But I think in high school is where I saw more of um, the guys trying to be a little bit rougher. Uh, I was fortunate to have some pretty good male training partners in high school. Like you mentioned, there are so many horror stories of females coming up on all-male teams, and I never really had horror stories. There were some things here and there, but nothing that ever deterred me or, or drove me away from the sport. Um, you know, by my sophomore year of high school, I won my first national title against women, but that kind of garnered me some respect with my teammates. They recognized I was a legitimate competitor. Um, I was a varsity starter by my junior year, so I had guys would go hard with me, but just wrestling hard. It wasn't like, oh, I'm going with the girl. I need to go balls out and, and you know, just come at me. Um, but, but there were still some guys, again, often more often than not, it was the guys, the freshmen or the sophomores that were just got them to the varsity room or uh, were new to the sport that thought, I have to beat the girl. And then would come at me and start clubbing at my head and stuff. And it, I never really got offended by it. I mean, I would just let them do what they needed to. But um, the guys that were better than me, I think they just used technique. They weren't there to beat up on me. You know, they would beat me, and I would get beat pretty bad sometimes. But I was getting beat technically. So there are some guys that think, you know, I don't want to say I want to call them jerks, but guys that went a little rougher, but um, I don't think, I think it was a pretty even split um, for the majority of my career. Yeah, what I have seen is that a lot of the higher belts, the more advanced belts, tend to be very respectful and mindful. They don't use as much power. They're a lot more technical and flowing, training with uh, women and female athletes. And then, of course, you get the younger belts. In general, the younger belts, the white belts, and a lot of the uh, blue belts, a lot of those guys can be spazzy and wild, and they just they don't they don't know as much. They don't maybe they don't have the skill set, so they feel like the only thing they can use is their horsepower. Um, but but you you are like a freak. I mean, you look really strong. You've got that wrestler power too, that athleticism. You've got that wrestler mindset where you're ready to get after it. So I'm sure that that catches a lot of guys. You're down there in that down there in Tennessee. I'm sure that catches a lot of guys off guard. Like holy mackerel! Like I've never this this is like the strongest woman I've ever felt. And and in addition, you've been training longer than 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 a lot of them. And so you've got technical advantage. You've got an extensive wrestling background. So it's probably a big curveball for um for a lot of for a lot of guys. Like whoa. Um, but, but let me, let me, um, let me, let me go into the, the sort of the tomboy thing, because I think that every time people now, now with women and young, young female athletes, 
in you know there's an explosion there training in the combat sports and i think everybody automatically sees a female wrestler or a female judica or a female jiu-jitsu player and they or a female fighter and think oh she's a tomboy or she's this but do you have to, are are all of the women training necessarily tomboys you know you'd say tomboy you think of like just this tough you know a lot of women come in day one they're worried oh these guys are stink as guys stink more than women guys are stinky they're sweating, you know, they're, 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 their breath stinks, whatever. Like, you know, a lot of women are not used to that. That that keeps a lot of women away from the gym, whereas a, what we would conventionally call a tomboy is like, eh, not, not a big deal. Like, tomboys can hang out with boys. They've been playing with, with boys and doing, you know, that, that climbing trees and whatever else and riding dirt bikes since since time eternity. Do you think, is, is there, is, is it like, hey, the, the, the best athletes in the, combat sports that you've seen are normally sort of the tomboys or is it like no that you know I don't even agree with that term I think there's a lot of women that are just more you know extremely more feminine they're not kind of one of the guys but I see you see a lot of them just just crushing it too um for myself personally when I was a kid I would have classified myself as a tomboy like I mentioned I grew up with all guys that I was playing with and we were rough with each other so I would have put myself in that category um at least when I, when I was younger probably until about high school um but that i think i was probably the minority in that regard maybe not the minority but i i don't think that's the majority um especially when you get into like college wrestling with women there are girls with all types of backgrounds that would classify themselves as all sorts of things and i think there are like the stereotypes and the stigma about females in combat sports but more often than not i think we're just like normal girls who just also happen to like punching people in the face or choking people out because we think it's fun um but i mean you have girl i mean there, there's a very not a large percentage but there's a significant percentage of girls who are also like cheerleaders or on the dance teams at their high school and you see the juxtaposition to those two sports i mean they could not be more opposite and there are girls who find you know joy and, and enjoy doing both of them for different reasons so i don't think that that's the case more often than not but um, I think inherently there is that stereotype, and I don't think there are any female combat sport athletes that get offended by that. I mean, you're doing a typically male-dominated sport, and we're aware of that. So if someone says, oh, like, you're a tomboy, I don't think anyone's going to get, you know, go be up in arms about it. But um, I think people that knew a lot of these girls off the mat would be shocked by the things we do in our spare time. And, you know, I think probably half of our national team, like, loves watching The Bachelor during national team camps. And <laughs> that blows my mind, but... Um, a lot of them are girly girls, and you know we all like getting dressed up. And I think probably one of our favorite things is you know after a big tournament, we all go out to eat. Um, you know when we're overseas somewhere, we all kind of get dressed up, and it's nice to go from being in a singlet on the mat and sweaty and gross and beating up on each other to being able to go out to a nice dinner and dressing up and getting to put makeup on and just feel more feminine. Um, so I, I think that you know there's some of those, like videos going around that like, the challenges of like. And all different sports have been doing it. They call it the pass the belt challenge or the don't rush challenge where there are girls in sports that are, like, putting a – doing, like, a small snippet of video in their uniform. And then they, like, put something in the camera and it pans back out and they're, like, dressed up and nice. And then they, like, pass it off to the next girl. And I think that's a really cool way of showing, like, what we're like when we're not in our competitive or training environment. Mm -hmm. What you and I were talking about this last time um... – about the thrill of competition and by competition we mean training also because there is you know everybody just thinks that, you know it's like well why would somebody there's so much sacrifice built into being 
uh, an elite wrestler or a competitive jiu-jitsu athlete or an MMA fighter. There's so much sacrifice. There's so much grueling training. There's so much exhaustion. It weeds out so many people. And so, and then not, not to mention all the injuries that you acquire along the way. And you think, well, why would anybody do that? Right? And so, and you think, well, what is it, what is it that we fell in love with to make it this many years to say, wow, well, wait, I can't walk away from it because if I walk away from it, I'm walking away from the thrill of what? What is that? What are those thrills for you that make all the sacrifices, all the injuries, that you know, all the hours invested, all the grueling training, what what's the thrill that makes it worth it? I think my favorite thing about wrestling is that I mean, obviously an individual sport, but as a result, there's nowhere to hide. When you compete and you succeed and you get your hand raised, that is all you. Is the things you put in when no one was looking, it was what you were doing with your extra hours. And when you get your hand raised, like you have complete ownership of that. I you know, and on the other side of that, if you fail that's also entirely your fault. No one said, you know, you can't train. Your, I mean, you have to take accountability of everything that went wrong for you to not achieve your goals. And as much as that can be heart-wrenching sometimes, there's kind of a, a, a comfort in knowing that you have complete control over your death, you know, over your future in the sport. Um, you can't blame it on teammates falling short or not doing their job. I mean, you really have to just be very inherently um just intrinsically motivated in order to do well um and i think just part of the sport I, i've had so many opportunities because of wrestling um you know being on the u.s national team getting to travel overseas uh you know competing at the highest level for so many years i you know i wouldn't trade those years for anything uh, but to get to that level I, I had to sacrifice a lot too but it, to me that, that's all worth it and then from a training aspect, I mean, to, to really love combat sports, you have to be a little bit masochistic. I mean, there has to be a part of you that enjoys, you know, getting your hands dirty and, and really just digging deep and pushing past limits that you thought you had and, and just smashing them and, and saying, you know, I, I'm going to find, I'm, I'm going to work so hard today, I'm going to scare myself. And there are very few sports where you can really push past a limit that you thought you had and, and just really you know, find that next level and raise the bar for yourself over and over and over again. Um, we talked last time about that almost calmness you had after a hard workout or, you know, a one-hour grind match where you and a partner just went at each other. And you hate every second of it. I mean, when you're in it, like, it is miserable. But when you're done and you cool down and you finish your sprints, whatever it may be, and you're just sitting there soaked in sweat, you're like, man, I did that. Like, I, I put myself through that. Like, I didn't, you know, I didn't walk in today thinking that I was capable of that, and I did. And the rest of the day, you just feel great about yourself. But you have to go through some crap in order to get that feeling. But that kind of euphoria you have when you're done, like, there is a very, very large percentage of the population that couldn't even fathom working as hard as the average wrestler does in a normal day. Um, and to be able to do that on a consistent basis and, and have that satisfaction you get after a hard workout or a hard tournament or anything, um, those are the moments where I'm like, man, I love this. Like, like this, these are things that well, I'm 60 years old, like, I'm never going to regret it. You know, as much as I hurt a little bit now, and, you know, I'm probably going to hurt for the rest of my life, I, I've dealt with a lot of injuries, and I'm still dealing with a lot of injuries. Um, it'd be really hard to, you know, I don't think I'll ever look back in my career and say, I wish I didn't do that. Um, I, I wouldn't trade those moments for anything. Yeah, you and I had such a good conversation about this uh, when we talked last week, and, you know, what's the thrill of this, and... 
Um, you know, obviously, like you said, you get to travel the world. That's a really good one too. Um, but also along what you said, I think for, for a lot of us, we have, we're a very attention deficit, uh, um, deficit, you know, dominant society, right? There's just such just, it's an epidemic. And so a lot, it's, it's, it's very few things that stop and demand 100% of your attention right now, right here in the present, right? And I think when you're on a wrestling mat with other really good wrestlers, um, and when you're on a wrestling mat with other really good wrestlers, and if you're on a jiu-jitsu mat with other, and, 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 and they're trying to arm bar you, they're trying to, they're trying to heel hook you, they're trying to crank this, they're, you know, they could slam you, they could take you down hard, right? They could make your life real, like a living heck. It's like, that's going to get your attention. Somebody who just choked you out 30 seconds ago has got your full attention. You're not going to be like, well, let me take a look at this. Let me look at my phone. Let me look at this billboard. You know, the monkey-mindedness of everyday life. It's like, no, this has got your attention. If you're out there, it's like, well, you're not, you're not, uh, you're not somewhere else, right? And I think that that, for one thing, is like it commands your full attention and not many things do these days. And the other thing is the accountability that you were alluding to the accountability and, and the instant feedback, because we're going to find out, we're going to put five minutes on that clock or whatever, five minutes, 10 minutes, we're going to get after each other and we're going to find out what happened. We're going to get a scoreboard. We're going to get some feedback right away. Like it's not just a normal day where people go their normal day. And then by the end of the day, they're like, what did I really do? It felt meaningless. It didn't have any meaning. What happened? Did I get better today? Did I get worse? They don't get any feedback. They don't get any, like, there's no like scoreboard, right? It's like, we get, you're going to go five, six, seven, eight, whatever rounds that day. You're going to do push-ups, whatever you're going to say. Hey, am I doing more push-ups than I did last week, right? Am, is, my, is my stamina better this week than it was last week? You're getting that feedback. You're getting a scoreboard. You're getting constant data to say, hey, we need to tinker this, right? As opposed to people just go to work and it's like, what did I even do today? What did I even produce, right? A lot of people go to work and they don't produce anything tangible. It's like, what did I do? Well, I... You know, I did, I made some calls and I made the company money, but they don't have anything to hold in their hand or something that they really feel attached to. It's like, I did that. Like someone building a house or building a, a, a skyscraper where we can say, or a, a big stadium, we did that. I was a part of that. And I love that, Julia, Julia about journalism. Um, I love that when you write something, then at the end of the day, your name is on it and you can say, I did that today. I did that. What did you do today? I did that, right? You have something tangible. And wrestling and jiu-jitsu and the combat scores, they give you that instant feedback. They give you that scoreboard. And then you talked about something else. It's like, I call it earning your exhaustion, like the, the thrill of exhaustion. It's like that feeling, the end of practice where you're, you're dripping sweat, you got four or five pounds of sweat on you. You're sitting around with your teammates. You're leaning against a wall. You feel you gave everything. You feel like you got nothing left to give, and you're thinking. And you, it's almost a zen. It's like the calmest, most relieved feeling in the world. Right? You're just sitting there. Sometimes you don't even want to get up. It's like, oh my god. I remember, Julia. I remember. I remember. I remember so many practices at Robert Drysdale's in 2009, 2010. I remember coming back from so many practices, parking in the driveway. Okay parking in the garage, in the garage. And I didn't, I was like, I had to talk. Sometimes I would sit in there for 25, 30 minutes and be like, Frank, you have to open the door. <laughs> you have to go in. You have to get something to eat and you have to shower. 
Yeah, and then I would sit there. I was, it wasn't just fatigue and it wasn't just like so tired. It was, it was like a zen. It was good. I just didn't want to move. I was just like, like almost like in a positive way hallucinating. I was just like, wow. Like I was still in the zen state. I did not want to get, and that's crazy. And I was doing two days back then. I was working at UFC. I was married with a kid. And I would come back end of the night like, wow, I don't want to get out of this car. I'll stay in that garage. And I'd be like, Frank, you know, you have to actually, you got to get to bed. You got to cook. You got to shower. You actually have to get out of the car. You know, <laughs> but that's the sort of the Zen of exhaustion. The final thing I want to say, and this is speaking to a lot of the younger athletes out there, because I'm sure you have, I've coached people of all ages, coached people in their sixties. I've coached, I've coached, uh, you know, kids that were four and on up four years old on up. And a lot of times when they first bring the kids in, um, the first month or even two months, you know, the kids are there, they get all this energy, whatever. They don't really don't enjoy it. They don't even know what they're doing. It's like the kid doesn't enjoy it. And then some parents are like, well, he or she doesn't enjoy it. So they just take them somewhere else. And I'm always, I'm always thinking, you know, I'm thinking my advice to people would be, you know what I say, I've said this to some of the kids. I've rallied around, Hey, gather around, gather around. And I've said, you know what? I know it doesn't seem like the most fun thing today, but we are, we are going to plant seeds of so much confidence in you. We're going to teach you to be less afraid. And I'll tell you, you know what's fun? It might not be fun right now, but you know what's fun, Julia? You know what's fun? Winning is fun. Winning is actually fun. If you stay and you get good and you start winning, winning is fun. It gets fun. When you don't know what you're doing and you're just the nail, the nail, the nail, the nail, it's not that much fun. There's great lessons when you're the nail. There's a lot of mental resilience and toughness and grit you can learn there and persistence and patience and all that great stuff. But... It's get it starts getting fun when you start winning, and that's you know so so I would say part of the thrill too is it's the thrill of domination which a lot of people don't want to talk about but it's fun we're primarily wired for that and it's the thrill of if you stay long enough and you get good on those days where you're the hammer or even when you're not even when you're somebody's tooth and nail back and forth but you pull it out and you find a way to win winning is a whole heck of a lot of fun and that's addictive that's addictive when it's like wow. I'm dominating today. I feel my opponent. I feel my training partner. I feel him break. I feel him give. It gets addicting once you taste that. Once you taste that domination and you taste those victories and they start to rack up. Even when you go through losing spells, like, wow, I want that feeling again, man. I want that, like, winning is fun. Do you relate to that? I mean, have you have you felt, I'm sure you felt the same thing. Quite literally called domination drill. 
And your goal for that two-minute go is to just dominate your partner and make them feel like there's no hope. And, you know, that might sound intense, but it is intense. I mean, that's, that's the way it's designed. It's supposed to be intense and mean and physical. Um, but it's fun. You know what I mean? That there's something very primal about that feeling of just knowing you're better than another human. That's the great thing about wrestling. I mean, there's no fancy equipment. There's, again, there's nowhere to hide. I mean, it's you and another human stepping into a circle and trying to figure out quite literally who is better at being a human, who's the better physical specimen. And to not only be better, but to be leaps and bounds better, that's a good feeling. And, again, one of those things that keeps me coming back year after year um, and continuing to train. Yeah, it's interesting if to... to, to... To elaborate on that, Brett Metcalf, of course, people who don't know who Brett Metcalf is, he was a, a multi, he was, I think he was a two time national champion at the University of Iowa. He's on the U.S. Uh, Olympic team as well. I believe he's on, he was on the U.S. Olympic team, wasn't he? He never made an Olympic team. Okay, he never made. Okay, okay. Um, but so to, to elaborate on, and thank you for that clarification, Julia. To, to elaborate on that, um, on that, you know, if you think, if the standard is just winning, right? And you take a standard of winning versus a standard of domination, right? Which is the higher standard? I mean, which is the bar? If we're gonna, if we're trying to rise to some level, right? If we're gonna set expectations, which one's superior to which? Just on the level, we say, well, the standard here is winning. Okay, that's great. What if the standard is domination? What if you're, you know, you're, you're, you're New England, the Patriots, and the standard is, is dynasties or the old Chicago Bulls, right? It's like that's different. And that's probably, like I say to people, you are your habits, you are your standards, you are the sum total of your habits, you are the sum total of your standards. You walk in every day to an environment where it's like, wait, 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 wait. We expect to win a national, to compete for national championships every year. We expect to compete and win Super Bowls every year. When the standards there, guess what? The performances tend to tend to go accordingly, right? It's like as you think, so shall you be. You you show me your standards, right? I say that in, in Forza Fit. Show me your shopping cart. You know, you want to show me how serious you are. And so it sounds to people out there, it may sound like, well, that's extreme. But if you want extreme results, a lot of times there's going to be extreme standards and extreme habits that support extreme results. And and again, if you don't if you don't have some of that domination in your heart. How can you expect to compete against the other athletes out there who do, the other champions who do? You're going to get, you're going to get run over. You're going to get steamrolled. That's just the reality of it. At the level that you're competing at, at the level that I've competed at, we're going to get steamrolled. We have to have a space in us. And I tell people this when I talk about the ideals. I just gave a speech to a company, to an organization yesterday, and talking about you know the warrior poet, the yin and the yang, the balancing things, balancing egos. And it's like, you have to have a space. Like there's a line. You, you have the only way you can know the brightest light. You have to go through a lot of darkness to get there. You have to go through dark places to get. You want brightest lights, high, br- br- brightest light, highest mountains, whatever. You got to go through darkness. You got to go through storms. You got to go through that. And part of that domination is like you're going into your own soul and saying, hey, can I get a little bit, you know, what they would call in the NFL, like, you know, they say the best linemen have that have a sort of a mean streak or a nasty streak. If you watch how many scouts say that, it's like, oh, mean streak, nasty streak. They like that in their linemen. They like them to be gritty and uh, they like a lot of wrestlers. They drafted a lot of wrestlers in, 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 in the first couple rounds this year in the NFL draft. And it's like, that's a compliment in your line. You don't want soft linemen protecting your quarterback. Your quarterback's going to get sacked a lot. You need like people, you know, guys with an edge, guys with a chip. Uh, but again, but there's that balance. You don't want them to be so hot-headed and such firecrackers that they're getting penalties and they're doing stupid things and and 
and making mistakes and costing the team. So it's, it's a balance. And when we talk about domination, we're talking about athletes that are clean and pure and they're not looking for shortcuts. They're running toward hard work. A lot of admirable intangibles. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's a great quote by, by Brett Metcalf. Let's talk a little bit about ego. I love to talk about ego, and what's interesting, I want to pose this question to you, Julia. What do women, do the female athletes and wrestlers and fighters, do you think that their egos are as big as the male egos? And if they are, you know, give us some evidence, and if they're not, why not? Who, is, 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 is big ego just, you know, what, what do you see in terms of ego, in terms of the, the, the men and the women? About the, the the I just I thought this was one of the most amazing sports stories of it was this year the the girl in North Carolina won the state title in high school I think she's like a hundred what's her name Heaven Fitch okay a hundred and three pounds what was her weight class ninety eight a hundred three pounds one oh six I think one oh six now yeah. I'm looking at that and that is astonishing I mean that is amazing like to me. This is she should be in in contention for like high school athlete of the year. Uh, put that in perspective because a lot of people just see that and they think, oh, well, wow, okay, a girl beat the boys and like that's pretty impressive. But put put that in perspective for people like that's that is like super super extraordinary to me. You 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 would be able to better articulate it than me. So I mean, 
point of like there are inherent physiological differences between 18 year old girls and 18 year old boys I mean no one can deny that I mean you can have a girl that works her butt off and is super technical and oh you know when she's drilling her technique is on point and clean and crisp but you can go against a guy of lesser skill and still be at disadvantage just because some of these guys are grown men in high school I mean they're 18 years old they're turning into fully grown men so you're as a female wrestler you're at an inherent disadvantage right from the get-go so more often than not, a lot of girls that are still competing as guys full-time, you know, struggle to even make on their varsity lineup. And those that are varsity starters probably don't win, you know, the overwhelming majority of their matches. And even those that do win the overwhelming majority of their matches don't qualify for their state tournament. And of those that qualify for the state tournament, very few even place. And, I mean, there's, you know, you probably don't even take your socks off to count how many girls have won boys' state titles. I, I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing it's less than 10. Um, I can name three off the top of my head, I think. Um, but, I mean, it's, it's just, it's not common. I mean, it's just so unlikely because as females were put at disadvantage right from the get-go. So for her to be able to go in and win a boys' state tournament, and I think she, I mean, won fairly easily. I mean, I, I use that loosely, but um, I think she might have pinned a couple of the guys on, on her way to the title. So, I mean, it's incredible. It's, it's a massive accomplishment. And... The most incredible thing, and we'll probably get into this a little bit later, but as soon as she won, the 90% of people were saying how incredible it was and, and what an accomplishment, you know, she, she had, you know, what she did. But there were also people discrediting it, saying, oh, well, it was small school divisions, and oh, it was only at 106, and oh, those guys weren't even good. Like, shut up. Like, <laughs> all of that doesn't even matter. I mean, this is a girl that just beat a bunch of boys at the highest level in her state, North Carolina, and, and that can't be, you know, understated. I mean, that, that's just so incredible. Um, and obviously, I want her on my college team next year, so we're already recruiting her. But, um, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, she's incredible. And, and what the wild thing is, it's just to show the level of, of how far women's wrestling is right now, as good as Heaven Fitch is, I think she only took like fourth or fifth the Women's High School National Tournament last year. So how many other good girls are out there? You know, this girl is incredible. I mean, like, the best of the best, you know, in her state, men or women, regardless, and we have girls that beat her. So, I mean, that, that's just state of women's wrestling right now. Is we have so many girls who are competitive, um, and that, that's so awesome to see. What are what are the stats, I guess, you would know better than me, in terms of what percentage of high school wrestlers now are women, and how fast is that is that is that growing? I don't know the percentage exactly. I saw somewhere there was a stat that it was pretty close to 10% of current wrestlers are female right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were, as of last year, so the 2018-2019 season, based on, um, they do it based on hydration tests. So at the beginning of the year, you do hydration, no PC testing. Um, and that's how they actually take count um, of how many wrestlers they have um, overall. Not just female, but, but that's kind of what their benchmark is. So if a girl did her hydration, it means they showed a tent to compete that season. And that's how they established those numbers. Right. So the last time they had a complete season was 2018-2019. And they were, we were just shy of 22,000 girls nationwide. Um, so, I mean, that's huge. I mean, that's, that's a, lot, a lot of girls wrestling in the country. And there are some states where they feel they might not even have an accurate count because they don't have sanctioned women's wrestling in their state. So their girls are maybe being put in as men wrestlers. Um, obviously they know they're female, but because there's no way to input a female wrestler because they only have boys wrestling, right. these are, there must be some uncounted girls who are being put in as men. So th- there's a 
very likely chance. Again, this was 2018-2019 numbers, so I think we're probably close to about 25,000 girls nationwide right now um, who are competing in high school wrestling. That's astonishing. I coached a female uh, wrestler way back, like 20-some years ago, and it was she was the only girl on the team. And I was, you know... She had one of the biggest hearts on the team, but every time she would compete too, it would like it make my heart drop. I wanted her to win so bad. I would lose my voice and you know, every match was like tooth and nail with these guys and and, and uh but but I was just like, Wow, what a a quiet, soft spoken and she was just so courageous. One of my one of the favorite favorite athletes I've ever uh coached. Are women more technical than men on average in in, in these combat from what you've seen in wrestling and jiu-jitsu? Uh, yeah, the average woman. Average woman, more technical than average guy. Not at the elite level, there's a lot of technicians, so you talk about that top one, two, three percent, I mean, there's just, we can't split hairs there, there's a ton of technicians, but at the, the rest, the other, uh, you know, 95 percent, average, average woman, average man, who's more technical? I think if you were looking at someone drilling, I think it's probably on par, um, especially with girls competing against guys, you, I would more often find that girls are more, te- maybe not more technical, but more technique-oriented because we have to be. You know, we're already at a strength disadvantage. We, you know, we're already, you know, between testosterone and estrogen. I mean, we're, we're at, again, we're at a physiological, biological disadvantage. So the way we have to compensate is with technique. You know, we have to take that extra 10 minutes after practice to get a couple more reps in or, or go in for a one-on-one with our coach and, and fine-tune a technique because we have to. Um, so I think guys are able to perform techniques at maybe a higher level just because they are a little bit stronger. I mean, they can run through a double leg easier. They can get back in position easier and recover on a shot. But I think in terms of who's more technique-oriented, more detail-oriented, I think women are at a higher percentage more often than not. Give us some numbers because a lot of people out there, they haven't been – they're not grapplers. They're not martial artists. They're not fighters. And so – I know that weightlifting, you know, like trying to bench press, you know, bench press the most weight you can is not a big thing for you. There's other, but in terms of quantifying, whether it be pull-ups, whether it be a leg press, whether it be running up mountains with 80-pound sandbags, give us an idea of where your power output is, push-ups, where you are, and maybe some of the stronger uh, female athletes that you've seen. Like what kind of strength potential or or athletic potential we talk about something that regular people would understand in terms of the push-ups the leg presses the shoulder presses the uh you know the 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 sit-ups whatever um give us an idea of what you've been capable of and some of your best exercises and what you've seen from other female athletes at my peak my best lift was actually um power cleans um, now I have some bilateral shoulder issues. I don't power clean much at all anymore, much less looking for PRs. But at my best, um, and deadlifts too, deadlifts and power cleans were my two strongest lifts. Um, at my peak, I was power cleaning about 215-ish, um, and I hit close to 400 pounds on deadlifts. Um, and again, that's at my best. You know, Now I'm, I've lost quite a bit of weight. I went down a weight class. Um, I had some more injuries, so I'm a little more careful, but... Um, those were my best lifts. We're always um, lower body and, and core centric lifts. Power clean against a little bit upper body, but you're getting this, you know, your most momentum is coming from that initial lift using your legs and your quads and making sure those are firing. Um, and, and I think for females, and I can speak for at least wrestlers for sure, most of our power is lower body. Um, we don't have the strongest upper bodies, um, but, you know, again, squats, deadlifts, those kinds of things, we're, we're pretty pound for pound, we're pretty strong. Um, and wrestling, too, like you said, like, Benching isn't a wrestling lift. I mean, not only is it not conducive to, to female, you know, 
physiques, but it's not a big wrestling lift. You need to focus on, like, short, explosive movements. So it's a lot of cleans, um, you know, Olympic lifts, that kind of a thing that, are you know, translate more into wrestling a lot more. Push-pull movements. Um, I mean, you're never going to, like, press someone off of you. I mean, like, if you're getting pinned, there's more technical ways to go about it than just trying to, like, shove someone's entire weight off of your body. Um, but I think that's the best way I can kind of summarize that. In, in, is 25 push-ups, if the coach says, can give us 25 push-ups right now, is that a lot of push-ups for you consecutive? Just, you know, no, straight. No, I, I, I could probably crank out 100 straight if I needed to. I wouldn't, have, wouldn't necessarily want to, but 25 push-ups is nothing. If, if I made that a punishment, my girls would laugh at me. <laughs> They'd be like, seriously, that's it? I, I, can, I can make them hurt in better ways than that. Now, if you're dealing, you know, you're you're the assistant coach at King University, one of the premier uh, women's wrestling programs in the country, and, you know, talking about some of the younger, um, you know, dealing with younger athletes, what would you say, let's take it to a, a girl or a young woman out there who says, you know what, I'm interested in training jiu-jitsu, or I'm interested in taking a wrestling class, or, a, or a, you know, a, a combat sports class, but they're a little bit scared, but they, they get there day one, they're on the mats, you're their coach. What would you tell them? What four or five things would you want to tell them about so that they could get through that, that first day? I think number one is just like, you got to stick with it. I mean, no one's going to have a good first day and no one's even going to have a good first week. And more often than not, you're not even going to have a good first year. I mean, combat sports are just hard. I mean, that's the reality of it. They're hard and it takes a special kind of person to be able to stick with it. But that first time you tap someone with the technique or that first time you hit a double leg in live competition that you've been drilling and the first time you're able to be successful in a live situation, that's when the addiction kind of starts. And then you get a second time, then you get a third time, then you hit a new technique for the first time and now you have two or three things that you're good at and you just start building and building and building. It gets fun very quickly, but you kind of have to break through that initial roadblock of like, this is hard and I'm not good at it. And because everyone's been through that. And it's the people that are able to find you know, I, I always kind of like one of the reasons that I, I kind of hung on to jujitsu is because I like being bad at things because it means I have so much room to improve. I'm at a point in wrestling where there's still a lot of stuff I don't know, but in my own wrestling, I'm not going to learn a brand new technique that I'm going to apply in the next year. You know, I'm only wrestling one more year. For me, more often than that, it's fine-tuning things that I already do and making small adjustments and just kind of tightening those things up. Whereas I go into jujitsu every day with like almost a completely blank slate, and I'm just bad at a lot of stuff, and I have so much room for improvement, and I, I have the time to make those improvements. Um, and the people that can kind of find joy in being bad at something because it means that there's area to improve are the people that are successful. Um, and I think the other thing is like regardless of what how you end your career in a combat sport, the skills you can, the life skills really that you acquire through doing these sports is just there. You can't acquire them any other way um the accountability and just kind of intrinsic motivation and mental fortitude those sports require are things that are going to make you successful in anything you want to do any kind of professional career any other athletic endeavors and i mean you know, the accountability alone of having to manage your weight are things that the average person couldn't even fathom um so even if your your athletic career in combat sports doesn't end how you maybe anticipated or hoped there are things that you're going to carry with you the rest of your life until the day that you die that you wouldn't have learned if you hadn't stepped in a wrestling room or stepped on a jiu-jitsu mat or, in, you know, in an octagon, in a cage, and you can't replace those opportunities. Yeah, it's interesting. When I, um, I've worked for myself almost all of the last, 
seven and a half, eight years. And I can tell you that probably the hardest thing I've ever done was try to be in business by myself, right? Just be like a small business owner, consultant. Like that is like super hard. And that's not like naturally in my wheelhouse, right? Writing is naturally in my wheelhouse. Poetry, even the philosophy stuff, deep thinking, that's like natural. Um, I wasn't Mr. Natural Grappler, but I'm naturally gritty. I'm, I run toward hard work. I like hard work. I like a challenge. I like to push my body to the brink. So that was natural, right? The athlete, I'm not the supernatural athlete, but I have the temperament of a combat sports athlete naturally, right? I don't, I don't, some of us don't have to read, like, we didn't have Tony Robbins in our ear. Some of us, like some of these Navy SEALs or some of the elite wrestlers and even me for, for my career, like, I didn't need anybody else. I didn't need the motivation. I didn't need the spark. You know, if anything, I need to pull back sometimes, right? It's like, dude, I wanted to win. I wanted to go through the wall. I wanted to, like, we can die on the treadmill. to get. I, I was just wired like that. Like, some people, people are devouring motivation. A lot of people need the books. They need the audio books. They need that. And then some people are just wired that way, right? I, I was wired that way. But in business, I was not wired that way. Like, I thought, oh, with marketing, I thought, well, the marketing is disingenuous and it's manipulative and it's this. And so there were so many trouble spots. And sometimes what comforts me when times get get really hard in, in running a business is I just think, well, Frank, just think of the arc of your wrestling career. Think of the arc of your jiu-jitsu career. Like, it's like that. It goes like that. It goes up and down and it goes like that. And then there's light and there's these great moments and then there's these storms and it goes like that. And some days you're the nail and, and it just... That's just how it goes. And when I look at that, I'm like, this is the way that these things work. This is the way that becoming a better version, building a business, this is how it works. I mean, there's days where you feel like, what am I doing? And what I really look at, Julia, what I go back to is I go back to my intentions. I just say, well, Frank, is, are these your pure intentions? Do you really want to be doing what you're doing? Even if they're failing, do you really want to be in this space? Do you really want to run this kind of business? Do you really want to be in that particular sport? And you have to be honest, because some people are just... We're just doing things it's like we're settling, right? We're just, we're just with this person because we want someone. We're just running this business because we need money. We're just doing this because whatever. And it's like, nah, pure intentions are like, no, you're going to do that. Like you're going to wrestle even when you were losing money. You're going you're gonna to wrestle even if you didn't know how you're going to pay next month's rent. You're still going to wrestle, right? A lot of people are running businesses like, yeah, the intention is not pure. So I, always, I just look at it like, look, I know how this works. As long as I have pure intentions... As long as I, you know, so, so when you talk about that confidence that carries over from, from a mat, from a, a wrestling environment or a, or a jiu-jitsu environment, like carrying over to life, people don't realize the confidence, Julia, even when they go, let's say they go on a car lot, right? Car lots are not doing very well in the last couple of years. People are not buying cars like this, especially right now. But car lots for a while, everybody was like, I want a better car. Even when their, their, their old car worked fine, it could run another 100,000. Yeah, I want a nice car. I want People to look at me, see me, it'll help me in business, whatever, right? Impress the wife, whatever. Impress the future wife. But a lot of people go in car lots, so they're doing business deals, and they would be intimidated during the deal and do deals they because they weren't strong enough to say no. Women go out with a guy because they weren't strong enough to say no. People do all kinds of things in this world, all kinds of things that are because they don't have a strong enough constitution to say no, I don't want to do They're scared to say no. They're scared to say no to things. That's confidence. How many times do we get ourselves into trouble in situations because we didn't, we didn't exercise the power to say no because we weren't confident enough? We didn't have the power. Well, it gives you that sort of thing where it's like, yeah, it gives you the power to be, to be more no's, which helps you prioritize your time, prioritize your, you know, you know, your, 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 stay true to your mission. 
You got people saying, yes, 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 yes. Are you signing bad deals over here? Getting muscled in a deal? That happens all the time in business. People don't realize the value of confidence. It's not just, hey, if something broke out on a street corner, I could fight. And it's not just that. It's just it, because nobody wants to fight. You and I probably are not going to fight. We're not going to get into a street situation. But it's knowing that I can handle everyday situations, rude people, business deals, uh, you know, when business, when my own business isn't doing well, I can handle that because I have a residue of confidence from other storms, from other challenges, from other sufferings. And I say, you know what, what you're going through now, Frank, is a lot like that. It might not be as physically exhausting. It's a lot like that. You're not, you're the nail right now. And guess what? You went from being the nail and you became, you, you did a lot of hammering. You came, I, I rebounded, I, I redeemed myself. I got better. I fixed things and Combat sports had a lot of success, you know, won, won a lot, won my fair share in competition, won a whole, 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 whole lot in, in training. And that's just, you sort of see that that's the cycle. That's how it goes. And so you're absolutely right. Like that confidence is, is the gold. And, but to get it, like you said, very few people, very, very few step on the mat day one and they're God's gift to jujitsu or God. It just, it just doesn't work that way. It is. You have to see longer term, just like a business. Like if somebody wants to turn a profit in a business, if they're like, hey, I'm, I'm generalizing here. If they're like, hey, in five months, I want to be profitable, whatever. I, I'm not, there's exceptions, right? That's not realistic. Like they shouldn't even probably go into business. If they're like, I want to be profitable in three months, five months. Like, dude, you're, you, you know, there's already like a 90% chance your business is going to do well. Now you want to be profitable at month four, month five, you're crazy. And in general, I'm not saying it's not possible, but it's, it's highly unlikely. So someone going in with that mindset is already setting themselves up because when things get hard at month six and they're like, oh my God, I'm still losing money, they're, they're not psychologically ready for it. When you go in, you know, look, it's probably going to take you a year or two years to get profitable, right? And you're ready for that and you're ready for the grind and you're ready to be the nail. And, and, and the mats give you that. The mats train your mind to say, hey, that's kind of the pattern. That's how that arc works. It kind of it works like that, right? Um so in terms of, let me see here, we're going to, hold on one second, Julia, we're going to, so this is Frank Forza's show, this is part two, my interview with Julia Salata. Julia, we're talking now about injuries, um, you know, there's a lot, injuries will be tied to mental toughness, it's a test of your mental toughness. Talk to me about some of the most serious injuries you've had and, and working through that. Um, so I think kind of like the, the plight of my wrestling career has been injuries that weren't bad enough to put me out for any extended length of time, but things that nagged enough that it affected my training. I did have one surgery, uh, back in February of 2015. Uh, I had a bicep and labor repair in my shoulder that put me out for about six months. But other than that, it's been a lot of like short term stuff. Um, like some neat things that put me out for like four to six weeks, all that, but more often than not, it's kind of been like um, like nagging things. Um, I do have bilateral shoulder issues right now. I have a labor repair in both of my shoulders again. Um, I have like a bulging disc in my back, but it's things I can work through. Um, of course, with a lot of prehab and rehab, and it makes my body feel good. Being intentional about my recovery, um, I've made a lot of diet changes to make sure that I'm kind of running on all cylinders and just functioning the best that I can, but it, it's been a struggle at times for sure. Uh, when I have, you know, two or three of these issues all flaring up at the same time, I, I kind of scale back my training. And there's been times where my performance has been inconsistent as a result of inconsistent training um, out of necessity. But 
it, it's frustrating at times for sure. And to come back time and time again, and you know, you kind of have to put aside any fear of getting hurt again. Yeah, you know, sounds like a bad relationship. Like I don't want to get hurt again. Um, but there's times where I'm like, okay, like I'm ready to go back full force, back 100% full live training, and I hope it doesn't go south again. Um, and you just kind of have to be relentless in that regard and feel mentally tough at times too. There's times where, you know, something might be bugging me and it's like, well, I still got to get better today. I, I don't have time to waste, especially in an Olympic year. Um, I don't have time to, you know, let something nagging get to me. I, I've got to get the job done. Um, and, you know, it's like a boomerang. Like something happens, I just come right back, come right back, come right back. Um, but the other thing about that is that, you kind of have to look ahead to the future. And, you know, I know when I'm 40, 50 years old, like I might not feel like other 40, 50 year olds who dedicated almost 30 years of their life to a combat sport. Um, I've taken my fair share of beatings. I've had my head banged on and pulled on and I've had my shoulders yanked apart. And I mean, I, I might not feel great in a couple of years, but, um, you know, I've kind of accepted that as, as my reality is that I've, I'm sacrificing this time now because I have big goals and I don't want to look back and say, you know, I, I could have pushed a little bit harder. You know, because I was scared of being hurt or scared of being injured. I mean, I, I, I made that choice. Um, but, again, like, I, I, you know, the past couple of years, I started taking my recovery and my rehab and my diet a lot more seriously, which which has helped a lot. Um, I started recovering a lot faster. I think staying on that trend, you know, even later in life, I'm no longer an athlete. It's going to help me a lot as well. So I talk a lot about, you know, I – I had coined that phrase mind jitsu and jitsu means the art of and mind, right? So mind jitsu is the art of mind, the art of mindset. And I love the psychological game, right? Being a, a philosopher and being a journalist that interviewed north of 20,000 people professionally. Uh, I love what makes people tick, what's their why. And I'm going to talk about my why and then we'll, we'll ask you about your why, Julia, because it's interesting right now when I just talked to you, I'm like, well, Julia, is just she just... It's like she just loves this. She's just a competitor and she loves, you know, she loves the growth about it, right? The accountability and the growth as a catalyst for growth, right? A growth mindset. It feeds that day in, day out. Um, but, you know, just the pure competitor, you know, you, you, you come across like that. But we're going to we're going to dig a couple layers bigger for me personally. Like so we say, well, Frank, what is your what was my why? Like, why would I have a titanium plate in the neck? I have a 27-inch scar down the right leg. I almost lost that leg. I've had the broken hands, the broken noses, the broken cheekbones. I've had the 14 shoulder dislocations, the four chipped teeth, yada, yada, on and on and on and on and on. Why keep going? Like, why? What's wrong with you? I mean, I've had that discussion with people that were close to me before. Like, what? You know, it's time to say goodbye, Frank. It's time to stop. You know, my neck, I remember after I had the titanium plate in my neck, I got rear-ended by this lady on her cell phone. And, and, and uh, my neck was on fire for like three years, okay? So I'm a writer. You got to sit at a computer. And my neck was on fire. And I was having shooting pains, shooting pains all the way down in my hand all the time. And I was thinking like, what, what are you going to be like in 15, 20 years? You know, you're going to be addicted to prescription drugs. I'm having all these fears. And, and so, you know, it's like, well, what are you doing this? That's why I cried so hard, Julia, when I got my black belt in, in July, in uh, June of 2010, um, First of all, Robert surprised me. So he didn't, you know, it was, it was a Monday. To that point, I knew, I knew I was close to my black belt, okay? And I knew I was beating a lot of people. I had just placed at the world championships at the brown belt level. And so I knew, man, I, I, in the room I was beating, you know, almost everybody I trained with. And that, that was within 30 pounds of me. And I was holding my own with some really, I was holding my own with guys that were dropping in that were big names. You know, I was holding my own. So 
And then I, you know, and then I did really well at Worlds at the brown belt level. And I thought, well, I'm close, but, you know, it could be a while, right? It could be months, whatever. Don't worry about it. And anyway, it was a Monday, okay? So they were always on Saturdays. Nobody gives black belts out on a Monday. Maybe they do now, but they didn't back then. It was always a weekend thing because why? Because the weekend classes were biggest for us. A lot of the Saturday ones, like everybody came, right? Sometimes during the week, it'd be like, the diehards came, but everyone else didn't. And for whatever reason, jujitsu instructors that I've seen, they like the biggest class. They like to do it where it's really ceremonial. It's like there's 50 or 60 or 80 people in the class, right? So it's so much better than the, the, than, the, than 15 diehards being there, right? You want as many hand clappers and as many people to see it. And it's motivating to everyone else. It's motivating to the younger belts, right? So anyway, Saturday classes were the biggest. Anyways, on Monday, we probably had like 35 people in there on this day. No AC, all right? So we're in the we're in summertime now. Our AC was out for the summer. That's a whole other story. So we go at, we get after it. And, uh, you know, Robert makes some comments. And so he's making comments. And I'm starting to feel like toward the end of his comment, oh, well, he's like, I think he's talking about me, right? <laughs> so I was like, me. And then, you know, so Frank, come on up here. And, you know, and, uh, you know, here he wraps the black butt around me, does the, you know, the ceremonial throw, whatever, I guess. I don't even remember if anybody else threw me. I know that normally it's customary for the other black belts to throw you, but I don't even remember that, Julia. That's like white from my head. I don't remember any other black belts being up there. I just remember Robert. And then he, I remember he stands beside me, puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, uh, all right, Frank, is there anything you want to say to the class? <laughs> I remember he said that. He puts his hand on my shoulder. Robert's like 6'3", 230 pounds, a big guy. And he looks at me. All right, Frank, anything you want to say to him? And now, Julia, you know, you, I'm a verbose, you know, if you follow me on Facebook, social media, I'm verbose. Uh, I, I like the spoken word. I like the written word. I don't lack for words. I don't lack for ideas. And I, you know, I'm sitting there and my mind totally blank. My mind blanked. And I was just like, I didn't know anything to say. And then I didn't know anything to say. And I think what I was going to say is, well, I was going to like, you have to say something. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, my training partners. But I couldn't get any word out. And my mouth started to like quiver. You know, it's weird how, how our brain, it's, it's weird how the spirit works in that moment, right? Why does everything like shut down, right? Why did like, why can't you get a word out? I mean, you're a strong person. Why can't you even get a single word out? Why is your mind going blank? Like, what's going on? And he, part of it was, he got me, Julia. He got me with the shock. If he hadn't surprised me as much, I could have psychologically prepared, had my speech, kept my composure, but he got me with a curveball, kind of like somebody getting you with a surprise, like a, a wedding proposal or a surprise birthday, right? If you do it right and you really get someone, like the reaction is like golden, right? It's like, oh God, that's the best reaction when you truly surprise someone, right? And he got me because um, I did not see that coming on a Monday. And so, and I was thinking later, so then, he, you know, I, I sat there, I don't know how long I was there where I couldn't do anything. I start to, to uh, I'm trying to fight, you know, the, the more I'm trying to fight and say something and then my lip starts quivering, I kind of start, you know, welling up and I was like, I don't want to cry in front of everybody. And then I couldn't say anything. I didn't say anything. And then I started crying in front of everybody. And then at that point, you know, Robert just puts, keeps his hand on my shoulder and he looks at me and says, hey, it's okay, man. So... I don't even remember if I shook everyone's hand or not. All I remember is when that was over, I went and sat against the wall and I cried for at least 20 minutes and I didn't lift my head. I couldn't lift my head. I cried for 20 minutes. I didn't say anything. 
I didn't look up at anybody. It was like the cry where like, I mean, you know, just, just gross. Like it was a gross, I cried, I bawled that much. And then I was thinking like, why did you bawl that much? Like what's going on? Where did that come from? And the thing I went back to is like all the injuries and all the times where I was like, maybe you shouldn't do this. You're not going to have a neck. You have shooting pains all down your arm now. Like, and then I thought of my wrestling career. I'm like, I love wrestling so much. I went to Maryland. I wanted to be an All-American. I wanted to be an ACC champion. That was my whole identity. That got taken from me. You know, 27 scarred on that leg. And that, that artery just blocked. Never had the same blood flow in that leg. And I'm like, and so that dream was taken from me. That identity was taken. And then I was like, well, I'm probably, there were so many times in the jiu-jitsu journey, I was like, your body's just too, you know, Frank, you have a lot of heart. You have a lot of determination, but your body does, your body does, your body's not doing its part. It's not commensurate. It just, it's just not keeping up, you know, let's just do something else. It's not for you. And so to get there nine years later, nine years in that journey, a lot of two a day trainings too, and, 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 and still working full time. And like, and I loved it so much. And again, Julia, you know this, I'm not a household name. So it's not, I'm not Marcelo Garcia. I'm not a brand's brother. I'm not Kale Sanderson. I'm not Jordan Burroughs. I'm not Adeline Gray. I'm not, I'm nobody. I'm not on the Mount Rushmore of grappling or whatever. I'm one of those people who's probably right around the 1% though. That's, that's lived that, that we just, I just didn't get to put that cherry on top. I didn't get, I didn't get where we all want to go. I didn't get there. Right. I didn't, but but I put, but it wasn't for lack of effort. It wasn't like the intentions were there. The, I put the work in. It just wasn't meant for me for whatever reason. My own shortcomings, whatever. It just wasn't meant. It didn't go exactly the way I wanted it to go. But I bled for that. I suffered for that. And so the point I'm trying to make to people is like, what's the why underneath of that? Why was that so important? It's so irrational. It's like, Frank, you're ravaging your body. You know, you're going to these practices. Where are you getting at? You're not even making any money, Frank. You're not making any money out of this. Your wife's like, Where, what are you doing? Why are you going? Why aren't you doing? What are you doing? Like, you're hurting even. You're hurting your marriage. What's wrong with you, dude? And I'm like peeling back the layers of like, what's the why? And I think for me, a couple of the whys were going back to Baltimore, where being a, being a mark and being bullied and just being afraid. And I thought, well, I need to learn this stuff to be safe, to be, to be who I want to be. Because if I'm just who I want to be and I don't know how to fight, I get picked on. I get messed with. I'm a different dude. So if you're going to be a different dude, not trying to be different, not trying to be contrary, but if you're going to be a different dude, you better, you better know how to defend yourself just in case. Cause people are going to come at you like, Hey, you're stupid. You're this, you're this, you're this. Like, yeah, I want to be who I, who I am. And if you mess with me or you mess with my friends, then we, we'll handle that. You know, that's kind of how I was at the time. And so I needed to be different, to be who I was, to feel safe, to ease that insecurity, I was like, man, you need to learn how to fight. So it became like my drug in that way. And then it became, it, it, it commanded me to be present. And then, and then it was like, and then it was winning. And so the thrill of dominating, the thrill of, of winning, the, the camaraderie of everybody there, you know, everybody working together to get better. And it was like, dude, I didn't make a dime. I ran my body like so hard, pushed myself to the brink. You know, some of the tournaments leading up to them, when I step on the mat, I'm fine. I believe I can beat Godzilla. I feel, you know, 10 feet tall on the mat. But sometimes in the week leading up, we all go through things. You know, your mind plays tricks on you. So you go through that too. And I went through that hundreds of times where it's like by, by, by fight day, by competition day, I'm good, man. I'm like, dude, it's my day. It's my time. But there's days, as you know, Julia, before that, I'm like, eh. What am I doing? Why am I here? You know, your mind plays tricks on you. I went through that. I'm like, why did you do that? And I want to go one more to the why. I'm, I'm speaking too long. And then you're going to go to your deeper why. And my deeper why was, 
It was that insecurity. I was trying to build that up. I finally wanted confidence. Frederick Douglass, one of my favorite quotes, to say, you know, it's easier to build strong children than to repair broken men. I was a guy, I was the broken kid, the broken man, trying to repair a broken man, trying to repair myself. And this was my, this was my medicine. This was my instrument. This was my tool. And the other why was, and this is so gross, I always think, I'm like, on a spiritual level, I'm like, Frank, you have an obligation. You were given gifts, and it's your obligation to whatever higher power there is. It's your obligation to humanity to share your gifts. That's what makes the world go round. You do not dare. You have no right to die with great music left in you. You have no right to keep your gifts, things you can contribute. You have to do your part. John F. Kennedy Jr. used to say, Ask not what your country can do for you, what you can do for your country. I'm like, you have an obligation. Whatever you do well, even if there's only 10 people, even if you don't make money, even if there's 20, there might not be a million followers. You have an obligation right where you are to be a teacher, to teach what you know, to build up other people, to serve your community. You have an obligation to that. You are not allowed to die with great music left in you intentionally just because you're lazy, just because you know you don't feel like it. You're not allowed to do that. It's your job. You were given the gifts to take them to the max, play the hand of the max, and contribute and share with society, with your community. And it's your job to be a teacher of what you've learned. And that's my job. And so that, for me, it's not a financial thing. Those are two of my... Uh, my biggest whys, and now Julia, now that I've done with that filibuster, you tell me little deeper beyond just the pure competitor, what is really what is fueling you to go through all these sacrifices in this in this grueling uh, grueling lifestyle? I think it's two things. I think it's one kind of like you you mentioned. I'm scared of not giving everything that I had and living life with regret. Again, when I'm fifty years old do whatever I'm doing then, I don't want to look back and think, like, man, what if I had just given a little bit more? Like, what if I had pushed a little bit further? And, like, that's going to, that would eat away at me for so long. I mean, I'd probably go to my grave filled with regret. And that's scary. And that's kind of where I was at with this, this past Olympic quad without getting too deep into it. Um, I don't know if I was going to wrestle this past quad. Um, you know, the 2020 quad, so I might retire in 2016. At that point, I was I was done with college. I was kind of looking ahead of professional opportunities, and I was uh, I was actually at the Olympics. I was there training for Adeline Gray, and I was sitting in the stands, and I watched this girl that I had beaten. Her name is Amira Sizdikova. She was in Kazakhstan. Um, I had beaten her the year prior, or two years prior at Junior Worlds, and I was sitting in the stands, not competing in the Olympics, but there as a training partner, watching her win an Olympic bronze medal. And then I watched her go on the podium and get an Olympic medal, put her on her neck. And then I watched them raise the flags and see her flag get raised. And I was like, man, that could have been me. Like, I, I've beaten an Olympic medal. Like, I, I'm still this good. I, I can't, you know, I, I can't hang my shoes up now. Like, there's no way. So I committed to another quad. And it was that same thing. It's like, I, I haven't given everything yet. I, I need to find out what my potential is. And maybe I don't make an Olympic team. But... And then that would be okay if I felt that I'd given everything to, to this goal and, and this, this path that I'm on. Um, and, you know, to, to get off you know, track a little bit here, when, when the Olympics got canceled, it was a very odd thing for me. Because I planned on retiring after this year. Mm-hmm. Um, I was going to get surgery in the fall and kind of, you know, go on with, you know, still compete in jiu-jitsu, but go that professional route. You know, at this point I had my master's degree. It was time to move on. And then all of a sudden I was looking at a whole other year of and I'm like, well, I just gave everything I had for this past year. You know, I felt that I was ready for Olympic trials. They were supposed to be um, actually a, a month ago today. We 
Um, and I felt like I was ready to go, that I was the best version of myself that I could have been. Um, I had game plan appropriately, and now it was like, well, now what? Like, am I going to regress in the next year? Am I going to improve more? Like, I, I thought that I did what I needed to do in order to be successful. And I, I was going to walk away, whether it was after Olympic trials or after the Olympics, knowing that I put everything into it. Now I ha- I'm in this weird limbo of like, well, do I have more to give? I don't, I don't know. Because now I have a year to find out, but I, I don't know what that looks like. So I, it's kind of, you know, and I still found the answer to that yet, of what my next year of training is going to look like. But no, I think that's what kind of kept me going. Um, and what's always kept me going is, like, I want to find that potential. I don't want to have any regrets. Um, the other thing is just how much, how many opportunities I've been afforded through wrestling, I want to be able to give back. Uh, and that's part of the reason I love coaching so much is that I want the girls that I coach not only have the opportunities that I did, but I want them to have more opportunities. I want them to be more successful and travel in more countries and, and be given, you know, I mean, women's wrestling is starting to get a little bit more um, attention and, you know, we're starting to get some more sponsorships and people supporting us um, monetarily. And I want my girls to be supported and, and more financially stable than I was as, as a, a wrestler. Um, and it's why I work for Wrestling the Girl, which is a nonprofit that's designed um, to grow women's wrestling and empower young girls and women be successful through this sport. Um, and the longer I've been involved in wrestling, the more I've been able to give back. And, and that's kind of addictive, too, is the opportunity to give these other girls opportunities that, you know, I didn't even have. But, you know, coming up, you know, like you mentioned, I was kind of in those that early stage of the push of women's wrestling. And there are opportunities now that these girls have to compete and travel that I never had. And I think that's awesome. I mean, there's no bitterness there. I feel pumped about it. Um, and even when I'm done competing, I want to give back in ways that you know no one ever gave back to me and then that's that's a pretty big that's that's ambitious because i've had a lot of people you know put a lot of time and hours into me um and, and the longer you know all the experiences i've had as an athlete are just learning experiences and there are ways that i've learned more about the sport and how it can impact others so that i can just like regurgitate it back and, and just give back in so many ways um and i'm so thankful that i now have an outlet to that you might work with wrestling a girl and as a coach Yeah, it's interesting. You said a lot of good stuff there. And one of the things at the beginning that you said is you saw that other female athlete that you had beaten and you saw her, uh, you know, get an Olympic bronze medalist. And that was a spark like that was a motivation that was that there was something about that that was like, wow, like that could be me. And what and what's interesting is a lot of people there are a lot of people out there that would judge that and say, well, you know, the, the old saying, comparison is the thief of joy. And I agree, right? This is where life becomes a paradox, right? There become there are a lot of truths that are paradox. And where we there's a, there's a phenomenon called paralogical. And that just means, you know, that just the paradoxes of a lot of things where two things can be true. It's like, well, you have to be super confident and whatever, but you can't be, you know, you can't be, uh, you know, arrogant. Well, there's a thin line a lot of times between like, no, it's my day. I'm going to just go out and destroy this person and like, you know, but still wearing it in a way that's not gross, right? There's a thin line there. A lot of times we're, we're, there's a balance point and it can be tricky, but, but you saw that, that's normal. Like some people say that comes from a negative space. No one should do that, that's not right. But the reality is that's fuel and that fuels a lot of athletes such as like, again, I would say most of the elite high performers that I've seen in sports and beyond they hate losing more than they love winning. They hate losing times a hundred, times a hundred more than they love winning. 
times 100. It's not even close, right? And, and, and people could say, well, that's negative, and that's this, and that's that. But even a guy like Kale Sanderson, pristine, you know, pristine image and, and good guy, you know, just, just a pure cookie cutter, great guy. But even him, like, no, 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 I hate losing, right? Like, I hate, like, that is a, that's like, that would get a rise and that would stay with him. That would stain him for a while, right? And so that's what you see in a lot of the great ones, a lot of the high performers in the ecosystem. Now, people can judge it on the outside and say, well, that's negative, but it's tricky to say what's negative because negative can plant the seeds of a lot of positive. So it's tricky. If you just look at something in and of itself, you'd say, well, that's negative. But if you look at what the fruit that, 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 that downstream, the harvest, it's like, no, that negative can be planting seeds of a lot of positivity, right? If it turns out I'm on the phone, maybe I'm on the phone with a future Olympian, with a future gold medalist, a future bronze medalist, whatever, maybe I am. And you're going to be telling that story of, oh, well, let me tell you, I thought about going a professional route, doing something else. And then we look at that and say, well, what? If we just look at it, it sounds like, oh, is Julia saying she was jealous? Like, is she coming from a negative space? Like, oh, it's like, if you, if you get, if you place, it's like, no, we can't just look at everything all the time and just say, that's negative. It's, it's very tricky when you're talking about the psyche of elite athletes. Another thing you said that also resonated I remember, so when I gave my first TEDx speech, I, I hadn't given 10 speeches. So I gave it at UNLV. I got really lucky. That's probably a longer story to tell, but it's a good story of how I got that because they didn't even know what jiu-jitsu was. Like, these are a bunch of academics. They're like, we don't even, they don't know what wrestling is. They don't really even know what UFC is. They don't have any idea what jiu-jitsu is. How do you get a jiu-jitsu TED Talk? Like, right? Like, they didn't. So I really had to put on my, like, my storytelling hat and bring this to life for people who didn't, who were looking at me sideways, like, well, what is this? You know, 50 some year old people that were like, they just didn't get it, right? Even in this day and age, they didn't get it. They were wonderful people. And thank God that I was able, you know, I was able to explain it in terms that they liked. So anyway, I get, you know, I get this speech. I hadn't given 10 speeches, right? So you're there. This is going to be broadcast all over the TED, the, the, the TED channels and the TEDx channels. So it's a big deal, right? You put a lot of prep in that. And I remember after that, I got another speech. I was invited to give a speech at the Orleans Casino, and there were like 15 other professional speakers. One of those professional speakers had won a national title in speaking against, a, the pool was 20, no joke, no joke. There were 25,000 plus applicants, speakers in there, 25,000 plus. This guy was the, was the champion, the North American champion. That's not a joke, this is a real thing. So I was on the same speaking schedule as this guy that won, you know, and I had never seen him speak, right? And, and this guy's a real deal. And I'm like, okay, like, so I'm there. We all, we, he gets up and he goes first. Julia, it was a really, it was a good speech. The guy gave a really good speech. He had a lot of different devices. He switched it up. He got, he actually stepped off stage. He went into the audience. He had, you know, he had, um, he had interaction with, with, with the crowd. He had, you know, he had good visuals and everything and projector. So he, on a technical level, like he was hitting on all cylinders, right? But I watched him and I just thought, honestly, I was like, Frank, can you, and, and this is, this is going to sound, I apologize, it's going to sound arrogant. I'm just letting people a real window into the psyche of people that want to go and want to expand. I'm like, could you be as good as him? And I was like, absolutely. It wasn't even a second pause. I'm like, absolutely. Could you be better than that? Absolutely. Right? Here I am. I've got 10, 11 speeches under me. You know, I haven't been doing this long. I'm just like, it's in me, right? And so some people might say, well, you're delusional. 
you're this. I haven't won any national competitions. I'm not Mr. Whatever Speaker, but the point I'm trying to make out of that is I found that to be an incredibly motivating experience for me because I thought, dude, you can do this. Because there's times if you're going to get up there and you're going to speak, you're like, you're scared. You're like, ah, I suck. You know, there's always going to be those days. You're a wrestler, you're a district player. There's going to be those days, I suck. Things didn't go right today. I didn't get it done. I'm regressing, whatever. Uh, you know, I hit, I, I'm plateauing, I, you know, whatever. You feel that. And you feel that when you go up on stage, like, did I look stupid? Did I this? But I saw that and I just thought, man, you can do that. You can absolutely do that. And I've heard other, I've heard comedians say that about other comedians where it's like, eh, I thought I sucked. And then they see someone else and they're like, now what's interesting about what I just said, Julia, is it's the same for you, like how you looked at her. Even if you hadn't competed ever, sometimes you can go to a tournament and you didn't even compete against someone. You see them like, can I beat that person? Yeah, I can beat them. Meaning, yeah, I'm capable. Whether they're on the right day, whatever, the right training and prep, I am capable to beat that person. And what's interesting is if you're, if you're real with yourself, I see this in the UFC a lot. I see this a lot. Fighters know who's a really good matchup for them and who's a bad matchup. Nobody talks about that enough. You know, you see people call, usually fighters call out other fighters for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's going to help them move up the chain and, and make more money and get noticed, right? They want to take, they want to fight a big name fighter to get a better name. They want more money. But the other reason is it's, they know in their heart, stylistically, I'm a tough matchup for that person. They know it. Fighters know who's a bad matchup, even though all fighters usually on fight day, most of them on fight day will convince themselves, like you were talking about, they'll convince themselves it's going to be my day. They'll find a space in themselves, which is, I can get it done today, even though this other person's a tough matchup. But fighters know who's a tough matchup for them and who's not. And sometimes they'll try to avoid other fighters. They'll think, well, I'm not going to make as much money for this. There's a lot of risk here. That person's a stylistic tough matchup. They know. And so people like that that are honest with ourselves... That can work as a tremendous motivation sometimes go there and just extrapolate and say, do you have that kind of ability, you know? <clears throat> and I'm, I'm a fairly confident guy. And that was, a big, that was a big moment for me with the speaking. Now, I've got a long ways to go to fulfill that. That's still a work in progress. But I took, you know, I took a lot of confidence from the day that I saw that guy, um, that guy speak. Let's go into... Um, by the way, I want to tell one other story, and then let's go into women. I want us to go into the state of women's sports. You and I talked about this last time. What can we do? We're going to do that. I want to tell one other quick uh, story, and you can you can weigh in on this one too, because I, I I did I did write this down in advance. When I'm when I'm you know coaching younger athletes, right? And so when you're working with kids, and the kids are 12 years old or 10 years old, some of them are four and five years old, and you get a lot of crying kids in class, right? It's inevitable if you have kids that are, you know, age 4 to 12, whatever. There's going to be some crying kids, right? They're going to get tapped. They've never been tapped in their life. You know, they either get taken down hard or something like that. And you're going to have crying kids, right? And so crying is usually bad. You know, you go over to them and you say, okay, you know, hey, what, what hurts? You know, and what, one of my favorite things to them is like, okay, what hurts? And... You know, and then the oh, my finger hurts, and I'm like, oh, is your is your finger still moving? Yeah, my finger still moving. Can you still can you feel your finger? Yeah, is your finger still kind of strong? Whatever. Oh, wait, your finger still works. Oh, okay, good. You know, and so I would maybe basically make the point like, yeah, that still works, right? Yeah, that still works. But the the big thing is, when I see kids crying, there's a certain kind of kid. Is the minority kid in there? The minority. There are a tiny percentage, but some of them I see cry, and I'm like, oh man, that kid's got it. I can see that kind of a cry of a John Smith or a Brett Metcalf or a Cale Sanderson, like the ones who are like, 
they're the ones that Tom Brady, they hate to lose. And there's that cry. That kid's not crying for attention. They're not crying because they bumped their knee. They're crying because they didn't get it done or because they don't, something in them doesn't just accept losing. They're not okay with losing. And every once in a while, I run across that kid. And the parents, you look over, kid starts crying, right? He's the kid, the kind of kid who's crying, but he's fighting it too. <laughs> he doesn't want to cry. He doesn't want anyone looking at him to see him crying, right? He's that kind of kid. Not crying for attention. He's crying because he, he or she is so hurt by the feeling of losing. They don't accept it. And then the parents are over there. And a lot of times the parents are like, oh, you know, kind of like look over at the kid like, hey, stop crying. Knock it off. You're embarrassing us. Whatever. It's, you know, this is inappropriate. And, I, and there's times I've literally went to parents and said, no, 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 it's okay. I just saw something. Like your kid, you're, he's or she is not crying because, you know, they want attention or because they're hurt. They're crying right now because I'm like that's that quality is actually a, that is actually an extraordinary quality. This if 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 he or she keeps coming, they have a chance to be. Pre- I, I predict they have a chance to be pretty good. That's one of the things I look at. Like you ask me who's gonna who's gonna be really good. I don't know because a lot of the best athletes don't stay. So I can't say I can't predict that. But I can tell you that when I see that quality, that one, the ones that hate to lose are not okay with losing, and they're rare. If they keep coming, I like their chances to be good. I like that. You have anything? Those people have a little bit of like a different fire in them. You know what I mean? If they, it just means they care. You know, I'd rather see, there's nothing worse to me. And to be honest, there's a reason I coach college. Um, I deal with young adults, much better than I do kids, being completely upfront. But, uh, you know, the, I do at kids' clinics and stuff, like, kids that get so frustrated because they want to understand a technique are the kids that kind of find myself latching on to. You know, kids that mess something up and they like laugh about it and they blow it off. I'm like, you don't get it yet. Like, you you don't understand what it takes to be great. The kids that want to perfect things, and, and, you know, then you have to get teach them that, like, you're not going to be perfect right away and all that, but the kids that have that burning desire to be good at something are, are the kids that are going to be successful because they understand what it takes in order to, to you know, to win and, and to be good at something and um, like you said, those kids that are crying, not because they lost, because they expected better out of themselves, are the ones that I think have the most long-term potential if they stick with it. Now let's go to, really quick, final thing, it's two things. Romantic relationships. I've seen so many careers, um, combat sports careers derailed by people just fell so gaga in love. And then they, you know, it's particularly I'm talking about more in the high school level, like people that could have been. I had one athlete that uh, fell in love and just was phenomenal. One of the, the quickest learner I've ever seen and was giving a lot of the higher belts fits, even even as a, a, an early blue belt, but just fell in love, gaga, and just became more important to hang out with their, with their lover than be at practice. Have you, do you, have you seen, I guess, along the ways, you certainly probably don't see that at the, at the world level, but have you seen sort of the back in high school and that where the how much of a problem is that where a lot of our best athletes are sort of um derailed by romantic love oh definitely um like i said i coach college so i see it quite a bit um i had a high school coach ben griffin who used to call him distractions like whenever he'd be like talking about he would always give me a ride to our club practice every week he's like yeah you know, John, Johnny got a distraction. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, you know what I mean? He, he got a girlfriend. And from that point on, whenever he said, like, oh, so-and-so got a distraction, like, they, they didn't even get a title or a name. It was just their distraction. 
Uh, and more often than not, that's what it was. And like I said, I, I coach college now. And I try to be a little bit empathetic with some of my girls. And they, they not not very often because I'm not the best advice giver about it. But the girls are coming about, you know, so-and-so and whatever. And he, he, he did this and that. You know, I'm like, forget about that. Like, you know, if they're not there to support you and your athletic goals and your academic goals, you don't have time for that. And, you know, I, I have a pretty good group and a lot of them listen and heed my advice in that regard. But, uh, you know, I've seen that. I've had girls quit the team um, and go off and get married and then get divorced five years later. And, you know, I, I've seen every spectrum of it. Um, but, you know, I, I think it happens. Oh, not maybe, like, I wouldn't even say it's even close to you know, 10 or 20% of people, but every once in a while you get that one girl or that one guy that, you know, kind of goes off on a different path than what they made a thought when they were younger um, because they got blinded by love or what they probably thought was love. And it's unfortunate because um, I think the right relationship can really help an athlete, you know, if they have someone supportive and is with them, you know, along the way and it can be the best thing for them. But I think just as often you see relationships that can turn a career south pretty quickly and, and I, I wish that wasn't the case, but it's definitely the reality. That's a great. That is a great point. It, it it's finding that balance point where there's support there, and it's not they're not competing against each other, right? Where they because the level of sacrifice, particularly for the combat sports, is so high. I mean, these are not casual at at the level that you're at, and the collegiate level, and and beyond the Olympic level, in jujitsu, the World Championships. I mean, this is not casual stuff. It's all in. It's an all in lifestyle. And so you need a, to hit the jackpot and get a really supportive uh, partner for that. Let's talk. We talked. We had a wonderful conversation last time about women's sports and how do we, how do we get more people? How do the women get their due? Right? How do they, because you have women out there in so many sports that are working just as hard as the men. They're sacrificing just as much. They're fighting through injuries. They're playing with purity. They set a really positive example. They have all these incredible t- intangibles. Um, they show just as much fighting spirit, and yet they don't get near the amount of attention. They don't get near the amount of sponsorships, near the amount of opportunities, near the amount of, of financial um, opportunities. And so it is very lopsided, and you and I were talking about how do we, and again, as you and I were talking about last time, it's this is really a societal thing. This is a multi-layered uh, problem and solution because we can't just put it at the feet and say, well, it's just the fans, right? It's just the fans don't care. Women, WNBA is on TV, and unless it's a, you know, a title game or something, uh, you know, people don't care. So that's it. Sorry. Sorry, ladies. Uh, people just don't tune in as much, right? But you and I were talking about that in terms of solutions. What do you see as an elite female athlete? What what do you see as the, you know, what do you make of the opportunities for women? And, um, you know, what what do we need to do? Like, where are we? Where? How do you size it up? Do you see it as an issue? And um, and and if so, what do you think are where do we start to find solutions? I think, and this is something that I've been preaching um, within the women's wrestling circle for quite a while now, but, but it's really applicable to all female sports right now. And when you think about why people watch sports, like, yes, we watch them because we like watching a high level of technical skill, but I think that's a much smaller percentage than what we either want to acknowledge or do acknowledge. And you kind of went into that a little bit as well, and I'm sure we'll talk about that some more, but 
Uh, we still white people watch sports. Yes, you're watching great athletes do great things, but a lot of the two is that you know a lot of these athletes' backstories. I mean, when you know, look at the NFL draft that just happened, how many montages were there of like, you know, what these guys came through and what adversity they overcame and all this. Like, we're watching these athletes and we know what what they've done to get to this point, what adversity they've had, what roadblocks they've had, and what they've had to do in order to be successful. Um, or what kind of workout that they put in, and you know, how many training montages do we see? If you watch a UFC embedded, like we know what happened in every single moment going into whatever game we're watching, whatever match we're watching, or fight, and those same stories aren't getting told on the woman's side. Um, it, it's very rare that we're getting these backstories and, and getting to know these athletes on a personal level uh, on the woman's side of things. Um, and I think that's a big part of, of what's going on. And we just don't, we're not getting to know their, their stories. And people can relate to stories. You know, we see something in one of these professional athletes that we can relate to. We kind of latch on them a little bit and say, well, I want to see what this person does. I want to see what they accomplish. Or maybe it's someone that's just like, obnoxious and it's you know it's a villain maybe it's a john jones or a conor mcgregor that just runs their mouth and maybe you're only watching to watch them lose but you're watching you know what i mean everyone loves the heel and that's that's kind of what makes sports fun sometimes is people want to see an underdog but on the woman's side who are those underdogs who are those villains or what what have these athletes overcame and we don't know because these media companies aren't investing the time to put these women's stories on display for everybody to see it and, and to give them an audience and, and to make them care about what they're going to do on the field of play um and that's a shame because there are so many female athletes that have just interesting stories if not more because we've had to you know work harder to, to be successful and to get noticed compared to the average male athlete um and I really wish it could be put on display more and just, and just have someone invest in us and decide that we're worth being talked about too. And as soon as people start to get to know us and our personalities and our stories, they're going to want to see us compete as well. Um, and, and that's kind of, I think, is a big thing that has to happen is we have to start getting our stories told because that's what people can relate to and that's what's going to make people start to care. And I think, you know, we kind of talked about too, like what comes first, chicken or the egg? Because for a lot of media companies, they're a business. And what generates clicks and what, you know, what gets them views is, you know, what, what their money makers are, the men's sports. So they're going to say, well, well, why are we going to talk about their stories if no one cares? Well, they can't care if someone doesn't tell the story. So what has to happen first? Is there a market first? Or do we have to get, you know, become credible first? If you, you don't even want to say that. And, I mean, you can argue that, but at the end of the day, someone that has to take time to invest and say, I think this is worthwhile. Um, and you kind of told a story about the Fatia brothers and, and the UFC in the beginning. Um, with the Gracies and everything, but that's going to have to happen. Someone might have to be willing to take a hit at first in order for women's sports to be possible and exciting and talked about. Um, and I don't know who that person is, but I think they're out there, and I can't wait for them to step up. And that's going to be the first step in the right direction. It's just people talking about us and recognizing that as female athletes, we work just as hard, if not harder, um, to get to where we're at, to be the best at our sport. And people say, oh, if you put the average... You know, you took a female NBA player and a, or a oh, female WNBA player, put him against a male NBA player one-on-one. Like, of course the guy's going to win. Like, that's not a legitimate reason for delegitimizing women's sports. We, we work just as hard. We're just as competitive on our respective fields of play. And uh, I, I, I hope there's a change sooner rather than later um, in regards to that. Yeah, when we were talking last time, those are really good points. And, and we emphasized them last time. And... I had alluded to two different scenarios. I had alluded to the early years of the Ultimate Fighting Championship and sort of their arc and how that there is a correlation with women's sports. 
um, where it's just not viable right now. And then I also had alluded, I, I had mentioned a guy named Demetrius Johnson, who is one of the top fighters pound for pound in the world, at one point, arguably the top pound for pound in the world. Um, and so, you know, Demetrius Johnson is phenomenal, phenomenal technician, but largely underappreciated because he was small. He was a 125-pound fighter and so technical, and a lot of people didn't just didn't know or appreciate what they were seeing versus like heavyweights. You see these, you could see these very um, flat-footed heavyweights just th throwing big punches. Everybody understands that, right? You don't have to understand fighting to understand just two 250-pounders clobbering each other. Everybody gets that. When you start getting into the nuances like a Demetrius Johnson of the footwork and mixing it up and and um, you know and that sort of thing, people you know and and a lot of people also seeing Demetrius Johnson think, well, I could kick his butt. He's not that good. I could, yeah, he's he's beating up 125 pounds, but I kick his butt. So in any event, not largely underappreciated. I think that that's now back at the University of Maryland when I was there after my wrestling career ended, I was like, what am I going to do? I had this big void. I felt lost, and I actually went into college journalism I wrote for the school newspaper there the Diamondback which University of Maryland for probably the last four decades has had one of the best schools of journalism they produced a lot of uh, phenomenal journalists so I went there the daily newspaper and I covered women's lacrosse and women's field hockey and that was really my I traveled with them a lot and I just really was like wow I mean it's blown away the women's lacrosse team won the national title the women's field hockey team were um national runner-up and and you know so I just really just saw like wow how much they put into it and all of the same super qualities and intangibles that, that you know that make us love sports and and you're you're exactly right so so it's like well Demetrius Johnson he he wasn't a big pay-per-view star so what do you do with him do you just say well okay dude you're awesome but people don't want to tune into you you know sorry you know it's okay it's like that's the same argument with some of the women. It's like, well, you you know, sorry, ladies, you're you're killing it over here. You're phenomenal, but people just don't want to watch you. So we can't pay you like that, and we can't, you know, sorry, it's just it's just not going to happen until people would, like you said, chicken or the egg. And so when I think of it, I think of it as as someone who spent most of his life as a storyteller. I think that a lot of the problem is number one, lazy storytelling. A lot of unimagined. You have to be a better storyteller you have you know you need you need good storytellers to also put eyeballs on them because they can bring the really good stories to life a lot of a lot of journalists and writers are hacks that means they just want to bang 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 they don't put a lot into it they don't even they don't even know how to make they kind of make it's like giving you a mcdonald's hamburger right? it's not it's not a phenomenal it might not it's not from probably be the best hamburger of your life but it's it's a hack burger you know it's just like quick and easy boom it's probably not even real meat but, but, you know, you buy it and you eat it. And it's like, that's most storytellers. They're not even really, you need the really good storytellers in mass to come here and illuminate and bring out these stories. And you need, um, because everything is click driven now, right? Ronda Rousey was an exception because she had that edge. She had that chip on her shoulder. She could talk the talk. She could walk the walk there for a while. Um, and Ronda Rousey got clicks. They loved any, if Ronda Rousey sneezed, you'd see her all over the media. Um, but most uh, female athletes carry themselves with, uh, you know, with a lot more um, grace and reserve. And so you're going to have to dig a little deeper, you know, for the sound bites, for the storylines. And I think that, it, you know, you can't always do everything for, for money, including journalism, Alice. You have to do some things just because they're the right thing to do. It's just it is the right thing to do to realize, listen, 
the women have been at a disadvantage from the men for years because we kind of set a lot of things up that way. Like things were kind of, we kind of created a system to, to not uh, spotlight what women do. I mean, we created that system. And since we still have the residue of that system, yeah, we're making tremendous progress. We are. But since we still have the residue of that system and those stereotypes and, and that kind of mismatch in terms of media coverage and other opportunities, we have to, on the front end, as first movers, just say, look, it's the right thing to do to try to level the playing field more and say they get more coverage even if we don't get more clicks. You know, somebody has to, they have to do that. Or some business owner out there has to say, like, you know, a John DuPont who's, who's coming from a good space, right? Not a John DuPont who's coming from just this, this, this crazy malicious space but like another uh, a, a a somebody coming in with the money of a John DuPont minus the you know the 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 craziness of a John DuPont you need somebody's going to come in and say on a benevolent level I believe in what you athletes are doing I'm okay to you know UFC first five years under the Fertitta brothers and Dana White first five years they ate it 60 million dollars in the hole you know they were handing out tickets they were giving away you know, most tickets to some events, they were, they were playing tricks and, and using tarp to cover some of the seats so that when, during the broadcast, people couldn't see how many empty seats there were because they realized, listen, we have to give the perception that this is popular and that this will do well. And they had to sit there and believe in it and fight for it and lose money for five years. And I think we're there with female sports. Like, we're going to need journalists who say, look, we don't get a lot of clicks, but it's a great story and it's worth telling. It's the right thing to do. And we're going to need business people who will say somehow, people who have maybe some money to lose or some money to risk or whatever. I'm not saying all their money, but, but some people out there have so much money and say, look, I believe in this. We look at even a guy like Kobe Bryant who, who tragically died earlier this year with his, with his daughter and, and seven other people. And, and he was... Because he had his daughters and everything, he was so invested. He was going to be a great ambassador for women's sports. I think Kobe Bryant, I mean, the female sports lost a great ambassador when that helicopter went down, man. They lost some, you know, a lot of good people in that. But man, he was, he was, I think he he was he he was serious about it, you know? And he got it and he saw in the ladies like the same all a lot of the same intangibles and the attributes. So I think it's you know, it's it's going to take, um, especially even on the journalist and the writer side, it's going to take a lot of, you know, you were telling me, I mean, like, let's just take the combat sports. Like, I've seen in the last month or six weeks, you know, more women than usual on there. But before that, I hadn't seen many. You know, I think in the last six weeks now with the lockdown, you know, I don't know if you said something to some people or whatever. I have seen a little bit of a bump in the female combat sports athletes. But other than the UFC and the WWE, right, they seem to be the front runners with putting women uh, to the forefront. They seem to be ahead of the other uh, leagues, at least. Um, but jiu-jitsu has to catch up. Wrestling has to catch up. Um, long ways to go. And all of us, including me, we need to do, like, we need to do a way better job and say, hey, you know what, it's just... It's time. It's been, you know, the, we've 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 really given short shrift to the contributions of women for a long time. We really have. We've done that, you know, and, and historically, even a lot of stuff that were women ideas. I mean, how much stuff in history was like a woman 
invented that or coined that or whatever and then some dude some dude came i mean you just think it's got to be so much stuff in history it's like a dude's name is on it and it's like oh my goodness like you can't tell me that women didn't invent more stuff than like that the guy we invented everything come on like it's like come on it's it's, it's absurd so um it's just again i just think it's the right thing to do and that's why I love having a perspective like yours on here. I need to do, you know, I've interviewed a lot of women in my life and I've coached women, but we all need to do more and say, even when you're not going to make money out of it, you got to do some things. Like I say, sometimes it's intention over outcomes or, you know, or, or, uh, you know, purity over profits. And sometimes you just, all of us need to come more from a space of that and just say, look, what, what's, you know, Really quick though, while we still have time too, let's talk about some of the, um, you know, some of the phenomenal uh, um, athletes out there, like you know Saori Yoshida, and you got Helen Marulis, you got Beatrice Mosquita in jiu-jitsu, Misha Tate, Tanya Burbeek, and and then the one that I can watch highlight reel after highlight reel, uh, Grace Jacob Bullen. Um, just I can I can anybody who's listening out there, her last name is B U L L E N. You just want to watch like this human highlight reel of these bionic slams, like uh, from Norway. Oh my goodness! Like the, I could just watch, I could watch an hour of Grace Bullen, <laughs> just just throwing people. Um, yeah. So it's it's. Uh, is there anything you want to add to that on, on in terms of the solutions to, you know. Um, to sort of leveling this playing field and giving women, I guess, more opportunities and more of a spotlight to to showcase um, showcase their talent. No, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. And like you said, it's going to take hope people willing to stand up and and do what's right um, and just give us our fair due. And you know, that sounds like almost needy, like like I, I want my fair share again, but. And that's what it is. I mean, we need to have a lot to offer to the sports community, and uh, I'm excited for the day coming. It's coming sooner rather than later, but... Well, and um, I, th- I think sorry. everybody wins, too, Julia, because USA Wrestling yep. wins, IBJJF, everybody wins. I mean, there's no... Like, you can't have 50% of the population and they're getting, you know, whatever, 10, 15% of the, of, the, of the pot. You can't do that. You can't. I mean, everybody has to win. A lot of the guys out there have daughters. And, oh, by the way, there have been a lot of guys that are fighting for that kind of like sharing the stage and sharing. There are a lot of guys and fathers that, and coaches that want that, right? So it's not just, it's not just women. There's a lot of, there's a lot of men as well who say, no, like this is what they, this is what my daughter or, or my wife or, you know, whatever my, my athlete loves to do. And there's, there's plenty of, of, of male coaches and fathers and, and leaders out there that, that totally support the same thing. Nobody just really knows how to do it. Like, that's really the challenge. The challenge is not, it's not like every guy has his foot on women's throat and is like, hey, I don't want to see women, you know, have more opportunities. I don't think that, that, that that's the case. I think it's just people don't know how to do it because everybody is so money driven. Everybody is so click driven. It's like, how do we do this? Everything is through such a financial lens that everybody wants it to make financial sense first. And then when it does, they'll be like, okay, then let's do it. But if it doesn't make any financial sense, like, well, let's not bother with that now. And I'm just suggesting that the solution is we can't think, this is just for me, we can't think financial first because financial first is not going to work. 
Like we have to go to another space. We have to come from a pure space or a right, you know, a, a right space or just look at the whole system and say, well, you know, we just have to do this from a place of really good intentions. And I don't think it's the case that most guys out there are fighting. I don't think most guys would have a problem if the WNBA was killing it. Or I, don't, I, I don't think so. I mean, I, that's just me personally. I don't think that most guys see women wrestlers and think, what's she doing on that podcast or whatever? I don't, I don't think that most guys or coaches think like that or fathers. I don't think they do. I just think that nobody really thinks of it because they're just thinking, well, whenever, whenever it happens, it'll happen. Don't complain, you know? It's like, no, we kind of have to do something. This is just me. Like, we kind of have to do something to make that happen. We have to, we have to create systems and we have to create things that actually make, and I'm not saying legislation. I'm just saying we have to look at the conditions and say, what are we doing in terms of media? What are we doing in terms of, you know, in, in terms of investment, in terms of incentives to say, let's just try to put more of a spotlight, more of a stage on what, um, the female athletes are doing, which which is not with which is right on par with everything guys, all the fantastic stuff guys are doing. So, and I think anybody who doubts that, by the way, and I don't think there's many people listening to my stuff that will, but anybody who doubts that, just start going to watch women competition. I mean, go go, don't just watch on TV. Go go, start going. Go to a women's professional soccer game. Go to a women's rugby game. Go to a women's field hockey game you know, collegiate level, go to watch the U.S., you know, wrestling trials when everything opens back up for women's wrestling, go watch the women compete IBJJF, and, and you're going to be like, man, they're, 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 they're right there, they're going through all the same sacrifices, all the same fighting spirit, you know, and you're going to wind up, you'll wind up being a fan, you'll think you won't, and you'll wind up be like, oh my god, like, especially if you have a daughter. So it, it's, it's not, you know, a lot of people just haven't really gone to many women's competition games other than parents a lot of people haven't even gone and they don't realize like how much they would enjoy it and 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 how well a lot of the athletes represent themselves too and their teams i mean their communities you know it's a very well represented a very good representative so um julia how do people reach you if they want to reach you via email your twitter your instagram um my twitter and instagram are both at jsalata J-S-A-L-A-P-A. Um, and then my email, I actually have two different emails. Um, for anything like college wrestling related, um, it's jsalata at king, K-I-N-G dot E-D-U. Um, and if you have any questions specifically about the, the growth of women's wrestling at the youth level, high school, collegiate, however it may be, um, like I mentioned before, I work for a nonprofit called Wrestle Like a Girl. Um, I kind of focus on collegiate initiatives and state sanctioning, but um, if I can't answer your question or your comment, I can direct you to the right person. Um, my email for that is julia at wrestlelikeagirl.org. That's a great name. And uh, for anybody, I appreciate everyone listening. Anybody who wants to reach me, uh, my Facebook is Frank Forza. My Instagram is Frank underscore Forza. And my email is Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-I-E, at Frankie Forza. Dot com. Uh, I appreciate everyone listening to this episode with Julia Salata. Feel free to email us with any comments, feedback, etc. Uh, Julia, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. You showed great resilience and great grit by your willingness to re-record because last week we had a gar- we we recorded two hours, lightning in a bottle. And then it was so garbled that we couldn't put it out there. So I appreciate your grit and resilience. And happy happy training for that for that U.S. Olympic team. Thank you. Appreciate it. It should be about 11 months to the day. It's 
You make it. We'll, we'll bring. We'll bring you back on. We'll do. We'll do another oh, one. Solid <laughs> motivation in there. <laughs> you can say that's your new why. That's your why. You, we, we, when we peel back the layers of your why, you can you can cite that one as well. Thank All right. You. Thanks so much, Julia. You have a great day. You see you later. Bye.